Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Value Investors Edge Live. Today, we're hosting TORM, where we have their CEO, Jacob Mildgaard, and CFO, Kim Bale. They're here to discuss the product tanker markets. Uh, TORM reported last Thursday, uh, beating uh, earnings estimates slightly. Earnings are significantly up in the uh, product tanker space, but of course, the rates, benchmark rates have been pulling back the last couple of weeks. It's a good time to check in and, and update us on what's going on with the market and get their unique views. Uh, before we begin, for disclosures, I have no current position in TORM. Nothing you hear on the discussion today constitutes investment advice or official company guidance in any form. Uh, Jacob, Kim, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank all you. right. Fantastic. So if you would have joined us a few weeks ago, we would have been talking about, you know, all time record high rates and, and sentiment was very high and the stock prices were pushing, uh, you know, up uh, yearly highs. Uh, but now the sentiment is, is significantly dialed back, right? The rates have came back in a little bit. Um, can you just give us a kind of an update on, on product tanker markets right now, the dynamics and where you see uh, that we are in the cycle? Yeah, well, I think that's a million-dollar question, obviously, but uh, as you point to, a couple of weeks ago, we really uh, had elevated rates driven predominantly by what we would uh, term as uh, uh, operational floating storage, i.e. that the product tanker fleet globally were being used as uh, floating storage due to issues on the receiving end of when vessels arrived with cargo that there was actually no space. So we estimate that about 15% of the global fleet were either uh, in this operational floating storage or in what is more known from the crude market, real floating storage where you play the contango and you basically buy today in order to sell three or six months down the road at a, at a higher price. I think it's, it has been less prevalent in the product sector space than, uh, than it clearly has been uh, in crude. But everything else being equal a couple of weeks ago, that was the status today. Uh, clearly, uh, the contango has narrowed and, and is basically uh, gone. Uh, the forward curve is, is slightly positive, but, uh, but not at all to the extremes that we saw uh, uh, within the last uh, couple of months. So that has also driven down the demand for, uh, for crude vessels, but also in the product tanker space for this floating storage. And uh, we are seeing a normalization of the market rates as we speak uh, to something which is more akin to what we saw pre uh, this, uh, this spike in the, uh, in the uh, oil demand for floating storage. Yeah, definitely. So the rates have, have pulled back, uh, you know, significantly, but the rates are still strong in, in the overall picture. I know you're involved in, in the LR2 space, uh, LR1s, MRs. Uh, can you briefly describe maybe the differences between those markets and, and what sort of dynamics are going on there? I, I know the LR2s in specific went were very, very strong and LR1s as well. MRs didn't quite get the same spike. No, exactly as you point to, the larger the ship uh, in this environment, uh, uh, the wilder it got. And uh, and we clearly saw that in sort of the LR2s uh, driving this market. And the interesting thing about the LR2s has been that uh, that is sort of a, the, the segment in the product tanker space where you have most switching between being engaged in the crude market, alternatively being in clean in, at the time where you can sort of look at uh, that uh, it is most beneficial for the owner to be in either crude or product. People generally try to play that. And over the last, let's say, six months, 
um, it was so that at the beginning of of the, of the recent increase in rates, it was a crude market that really drove that. So quite a number of LR2s went into the Aframax trade to benefit from higher rates. And it actually meant that a couple of months ago, we saw that the number, the net number of LR2s in the world market were back to levels not seen since 2015. And that was before you got this floating storage phenomenon that I just uh, described before. So really, it was set up for that the supply in LR2 uh, had uh, dwindled because LR2s were migrating into the higher earning Aframax markets. And when the, you then saw demand coming back for LR2s, uh, rates really spiked and were above $100,000 uh, for a, a single journey in the Pacific, as you point to, uh, uh, for, uh, for some time. Unfortunately, it was also so that at the time when rates were really high, uh, the liquidity in the market uh, went down. So uh, so I think it's fair to say that the number of fixtures done at the extreme highs um, is probably, in a way, for owner side in general, disappointing. But of course, uh, it is it is very lucrative. Uh, it has been a very lucrative trade for, for LR2s. LR1 is just behind it. The smaller siblings uh, not driving rates just as high, but, uh, but still... Very, very uh, lucrative uh, race in that segment. It's probably pulled back from something between 80 to 100 to today, some, something in the range between 30 and 40 for, uh, for LR1s. And then uh, on the MRs, we saw the recent spike going all the way up to around 60 to 70,000 in, in Asia and Middle East. And it's probably pulled back all the way back to mid, uh, mid-teens up to $20,000, depending on uh, your exact position just as it is uh, right now. But I think it's, it's important, as you point to, to notice that this is still profitable uh, business for us and for many others. Our PBT break-even, Kim can come back to it in more detail, but we have, uh, you know, the one thing you can manage in a structure like uh, TORM is obviously your cost structure, you know, that you don't get carried away on building uh, assets and a portfolio of assets at the wrong time. And here we are really fortunate that our PBT break even is at $15,000 per day. And everything above that basically goes to the bottom line straight uh, because of, uh, of our structure. So, uh, so it has been uh, uh, very, very profitable, and it still is, as you point to. Yeah, you you mentioned on the LR2s, there, there was so much switching, right? The dirty side of the, the business, so the clean rate spiked. Uh, you bet you 14 LR2s, right? Two new builds and 12 on the water. Uh, what, what was your current breakdown in terms of how many of those were trading crude and how many of those were on the product market? Yeah, so we have, uh, in our portfolio, we basically have about 50-50 because as the vessels uh, uh, turn older, you generally tend to migrate towards uh, the crude market. And we have a number of vessels that are built uh, before, uh, say, 2005. And all of those we've been trading dirty and the rest we've been trading uh, clean. And we did manage to do uh, you know, very lucrative trade on, on one of our uh, more uh, modern units where we did a, a six-month period at, uh, at more than $50,000 net, which is, of course, uh, sort of in a historic perspective is uh, a very, very profitable uh, trade. So we've been enjoying, but as you point to, on about half our fleet, 
uh, in clean and half in, uh, in crude. But let's not forget that the crude market has also been extremely profitable. Not to the extremes of uh, of the clean LR2, so. Yeah, I, I noticed on your guidance for quarter two, the LR1 rates and LR2 were very similar. And I figured that was because all the LR1s were trading clean and kind of the LR2s were split. Is that is that right? I, I think the guidance was very I think similar. that's fair. Yeah, and also there's the age distribution that I just uh, described, but you're absolutely right. that that uh, So we didn't get uh, the search in that. But then we've also covered into Q3, uh, as, I, as I just uh, mentioned, at levels. Uh, I think, let's see. Uh, but which could prove to be really healthy on a number of units, uh, you know, in the 40s and in the 50s into uh, coverage also in Q3. So uh, so let's see. But it has okay. been very, very interesting and very volatile, as you also point to. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a pretty decent segue because kind of my next question is, you know, a lot of folks are concerned and myself included that on the other side of this hill, we're going to have a destocking event that could last for several years. And I know we saw, you know, we saw destocking in 2016 and 2017, and it, it was very tough for rates. And it seems like, uh, you know, there's going to be a pretty big global glut of products developed. Are you concerned about that, you know, sort of like multi-year period of destocking? Or do you think, you know, do you think the rates can still stay strong and we can work around that? And also related to that, are you taking any sort of defensive measures? I know you said you've you fixed a few vessels into like Q3. Have you fixed anything longer term than that, maybe for a few years? Yeah, so let, let me just start with, so our thinking is that if you had asked me, let's say a month ago, I would probably be more concerned about the medium term than than what is happening today because uh, sort of the transition in the oil markets from being in contango and having a, a clear oversupply, uh, cargoes both on crude and clean entering into storage and uh, sort of this buildup, uh, as you point to, of, uh, of storage uh, worldwide, both onshore and uh, and on board the ships is of course something that that can be painful to get yourself out of on the other side so i think it's fair to say that the that the period of the build up has been shorter than uh, what we actually sort of uh, had our as our base case uh, only one or let's say two months ago um, and that it has been uh, a little surprising that the markets have actually uh, fine tune themselves that you've seen oil price almost double uh, in over the last uh, month, and that you've seen demand picking up at least, uh, of course, as as uh, economies come out of uh, of the lockdown, that there is a gradual improvement in the underlying uh, demand for oil products, and at the same time that the supply has uh, has actually been OPEC plus has been pretty good. Uh, they're keeping up with their promises uh, around that. So I think sort of lifting up in a helicopter, we will have a shorter time to enjoy these very, very high rates. But on the other hand, it also means that the buildup of uh, refined products in storage will be lower, everything else being equal than what we could have expected. So I think that's the one dynamic that is actually a positive. Obviously, it means that we will not have as high rates uh, for, for longer. But we will then, on the other hand, have a swing back that can come back potentially faster than what you described from a demand perspective. Of course, it is an unknown for all of us to go through a complete lockdown of uh, the global economies uh, simultaneously, more or less, and then to reopen it. So let's see. 
but it does look uh, promising on that side. Then sector-wise, what is also positive and different from 16 and 17, one thing is the size of the plot or, or sort of the oil uh, product that you need to eat yourself through. But the other thing is, of course, that we're actually looking at an order book that is significantly different. You know, the supply of new tonnage coming uh, to our market uh, in conjunction with this development of that you have to read it through the buildup of stock is uh, significantly lower than what was the case in 1617. So I'm, I'm probably leaning toward a more optimistic view than a multi-year, but clearly there will be a, a bill to be paid in terms of uh, lower rates uh, as you eat through this uh, buildup of, uh, of products. What we've done in terms of uh, more defensive, we're, we're actually pretty <laughs> aggressive. And as, just, as I just described, we actually think it will be more short-lived. So we don't really see a big, uh, I think there's two things. We don't see a big need to go uh, to go very deep on the curve at, at uh, what you need to, to do right now is, of course, to discount that heavily uh, on one side. And on the other side, let's also face that uh, with the intransparency around where the global economy is going and what it means for all markets in general, the liquidity in longer term deals has been low. Yeah, it seems like there's there's been a limited number of charters. I know, uh, you know, Scorpio Tankers, for instance, did their earnings, and they claimed they've been doing a lot of charters, but they didn't, you know, they didn't disclose those, and we, we haven't seen a lot. We've seen a few six month deals, I think, done for LR2s, but not a whole lot else. And it's it's hard to get excited about a six month deal with LR2s when the rates were six figures. Right, you'd have to take a pretty big discount uh, just out a few months of cover. So so very interesting there. Uh, l- let's pivot a little bit and talk about your capital allocation and, and priorities there. So we, we know the stock is trading at a significant discount right to NAV. And, and you mentioned the small order book. I know you have two LR2s right remaining for delivery in 2021. So those are those are really far away. Um, is What kind of are your priorities at this point? Do you focus more on deleveraging the balance sheet some more? Are you looking to buy some more assets, either new builds or secondhand? Are you looking into repurchases or dividends? What? How do you kind of rank those priorities and, and how does that play into the company here? Uh, perhaps I can uh, answer on that question, uh, Kim here. Um, first of all, the, the latest uh, recent distribution we made was 50% of our net income for uh, for second half 2019, a combination of share buybacks and, uh, and dividends of a total of uh, 10 cents per share. And that is uh, in accordance with our distribution policy, which is uh, between 25 to 50% semi-annually uh, of our net income. Uh, so n- next time we will assess that will be um, will be uh, in the second uh, when release when release the second quarter earnings uh, in August um, and where we uh, hopefully will have much more clarity of uh, the outlook for the market. And uh, you ask about fleet renewal. We are continuously, uh, of course, looking to maintain and renew our fleet in the, in the most profitable manner. So we can do that by purchasing modern second hand vessels. Uh, or contracting new buildings, uh, as you also alluded to, that we have uh, that we have in in our old book uh, by in 2021, or we can sell older tonnage, and then we can uh, we believe we we maintain our fleet by uh, by our scrub investments. Um, uh, we have taken delivery of the two LR ones, uh, two MR ones this year, and uh, we have uh, divested one old uh, older handy size. Um, so, so that's basically where we are right now. And uh, and having said that, our when you 
when you collect that and, uh, and look into our commitments in the future, they are very manageable. Um, and then regarding our uh, our deleveraging uh, possibilities, basically we are seeing we are we see volatile markets. We see uh, some a lot of insecurity right now or uncertainty right now. So our focus is on cash generation and then deleveraging through. Uh, to uh, bringing down our leverage through uh, through cash generation, basically, uh, we don't have any plans of uh, repaying uh, uh, extraordinary repay debt or, or any similar. We will be focusing on uh, on delivering through cash generation, so we will be able uh, to or to have, have the financial flexibility to be able to uh, to look into further possibilities if they should uh, arise in the in the market we are going into. You mentioned, you know, selling some of the older tonnage as a way to kind of keep the average age uh, more renewed. You know, I look, looking at your fleet list, it seems like you have about 25 ships, uh, pretty close to 25, it's like 23, that are 15 years or older, right? So, so a little bit of an aging uh, fleet in some regards. Um, how are, first of all, how are those ships performing? Because we, we always hear a lot about, you know, 15 years being kind of a critical age. So how are those ships performing? And then second of all, do you plan to, you know, return to asset sales? I know, I think last year or so you sold, you know, eight or nine vessels, but since COVID started, uh, you've kind of stopped those, those sales. Yeah, let me, let me elaborate a bit on that. You're absolutely right that uh, uh, we have, seen that it has been quite difficult for the buyers and sellers to actually uh, engage in dialogue because it's been difficult to inspect vessels for sale and uh, actually also that the actual delivery to new owners is quite complicated when you need to depart and onboard a new crew in a world where there's basically restrictions in in uh, most countries. So, so I think it's fair to say that the liquidity has, uh, has evaporated uh, in in the S&P market to uh, to a very high degree because of operational issues on both sellers and, and buyers side. But when we look at it more, uh, that, that phenomena is slowly starting to ease. And if we lift it up in sort of in a more strategic uh, mode, as you also point to, then uh, yes, we constantly uh, drive our assets uh, for as long as we deem that they are uh, suitable for our customers. and that we see that it is the better employment of capital uh, in relationship to keep them on our balance sheet rather than selling them off. And for instance, the vessels you, you mentioned that we sold last year has an average age of around 18. Of course, you can say, and, and they actually within, within uh, a, a very narrow band of being around that vintage when they uh, exit our fleet. And that's not a coincidence. That is actually because uh, up until then, we see more value creation on our platform by maintaining the vessels to a high standard that meets the criteria of our customers and which at the same time uh, contributes with the high return on investor capital, which puts us actually, when you use that as your measuring stick, which we like to uh, on your work, that uh, that we actually come out best in class in uh, in our sector. So we do not have the youngest fleet. But we've got a fleet that we can utilize towards all of our customers and which contributes with the highest earning. Um, as we move forward, I, uh, I sincerely believe that we will, again, be selling uh, older tonnage, but we, we don't have the back against the wall. 
Um, and uh, and we are happy to maintain them. We are fortunate to have Cap 1, which is a terminology, uh, the Cap 1 rating on our ships, which means that most of our older tonnage can still be utilized by our customers, even though they are more than 15 years of age. So there's not really a 15-year age um, sort of invisible ceiling for us. I would think it's probably closer to 20, if anything, because of our maintenance. Excellent. Good to hear. Yeah, I know 15 is kind of thrown around a lot, but it's, it seemed like you were doing some good trading on some of those uh, older ships. And, you know, of course, there'll be a little bit lower earnings uh, compared to maybe a modern eco build. But it seemed like your performance quarter after quarter has been you know similar to the rest of the market, even though your fleet is older. So I, I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Um, you know, I'm looking at your latest presentation. I'm on slide 34 and it shows your scheduled debt repayments all the way out until 2026. So a, a very smooth kind of amortization. Um, I think you just had about 70 million left this year. And then of course, 2021 is the most, uh, about 150 million of debt. But after that, that there, there's really minimal debt until 2026. And I think I just heard you mention that, you know, you're, you're just going to delever by cash generation. You have no goals of, of accelerating the debt because it's already, you know, the structure is already pretty clean. So how do we address the share discount? So I think a lot of investors are frustrated, and I'm sure you are as well, that look, I, I think in your presentation, I think you list your NAV at, at, at 13 or, or something like that. Um, I have your NAV maybe a little bit lower. Um, but you still traded a big discount, right? That must be frustrating. So what sort of levers can you pull to to sort of narrow that gap? Is I mean, Obviously, repurchases, but have you considered maybe selling assets and, and using those proceeds to buy sh- uh, buy stock or, or any other sort of uh, things that you could do? I, I can perhaps start, uh, Jacob. Um, first of all, uh, you, are, you are right. Uh, we, will, we would love to have a higher uh, PNAP of course, uh, currently, uh, I think uh, we are all uh, more or less in the same boat than most of us in the product hanger market. But um, but the way we can uh, can improve that is, it, uh, in my opinion, is general to uh, to do what we are doing already. We are, uh, uh, are uh, trying to be the best in class uh, performance wise, um, and then doing all the right stuff. We have uh, one Tom platform where we uh, we we have all uh, our services integrated. Uh, in one company, uh, and we believe that is uh, a clear edge for us. So, so doing all that right is ba- the basis for um, for for maintaining a, a high standards and a, and a high profile and and, and higher earnings than uh, when we compare us to to the rest of the market. Um, and of course, one thing we we, we must admit uh, that is what would uh, drive uh, uh, the discount uh, down is of course a higher share liquidity. Um, we do, we have seen that the share liquidity in uh, in our U.S. shares has increased somewhat during uh, during the current uh, month, but of course uh, we we need more share liquidity in order to to really narrow that down, um, and uh, and and of course that is a that's a long term uh, uh, initiative to do that, and it uh, yeah and that, that there are several ways of doing it, but uh, but our main focus now is just to perform as well as we're doing right now. You mentioned sort of the share liquidity, which, you know, I guess you kind of beat me to asking my follow up question. But, you know, I look, you know, I, I think slide 52, I, I took a look at your slide deck before the call here. And, you know, I'm seeing on, on slide 52, you mentioned that Oak Tree basically owns two thirds of your shares and then other institutions, uh, you know, both private equity and, and funds and, and whatnot 
own 20%. So you add those together and you got 86% of your shares in a very small group. And you only have 14% that you estimate is free float retail. So that's, that's very limited, right? So, so what sort of uh, efforts can you do? I know you mentioned, right? It'd be nice to have a better free float. Um, is there anything you can do to boost that float without diluting the shares? Is there any sort of transaction you could do with Oak Tree or uh, any sort of tender offer or something you could accomplish? Have, have you put much thought into that? Maybe I I, I can have a stab at that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in, in points. Uh, so there's a there's a share overhang whether you take Oak Tree isolated or whether you then, as you say, combine it with other institutional uh, investors. And uh, I think I think uh, Oak Tree is, of course, fully aware of that. We are fully aware of that. We will do uh, the right things, and and of course, a dilutionary uh, share issuance at at the current uh, market levels where we are trading at whatever PNAV you, whether it's 0.6 or 0.7 or, you know, depending on, on your NAV evaluation and the current trade. But, you know, it's a considerable discount. And I don't think it's going to happen. And it's actually not going to help us because it would mean that Oak Tree and others would have to give up uh, currently protecting their uh, pro rata share or something that they that they value high and definitely higher than today's share price. So I don't think that's a realistic avenue. Um, I think our own steps would, of course, be that you do some kind of share-for-share share transaction with uh, with uh, somebody who who is willing to go from private into public with us or between two uh, publics. But but that is something you can also not control. So I think it's, it's actually, in my opinion, shipping has a, a broader theme of a problem where we fall into, which is that shipping in general is not very favored. Uh, by uh, by institutions at large, and that we are actually small in the in the bigger picture. So uh, of course, you can if we look at ourselves, market cap, let's say half a billion. Uh, you know, in the big picture, that's a small fish, and and uh, and I think sort of the the labeling of commonly like ourselves, we need to demonstrate for longer that we actually create a superior value. Uh, in order to get people to be uh, constantly there, but but I see a lot of value uh, still sort of in uh, in us in doing exactly what Kim uh, described. I you know simply still trading the vessels better than anybody else, delivering the highest return on investor capital uh, among peers, and at the same time doing the smart things around our assets that you actually uh, asked uh, me around. You know. Yes, we have all the assets, and yes, we will be selling them, but we're not going to sell them before we've sort of extracted the full value of them, and then we will redeploy that capital intelligently. And I think that's what the market needs to uh, to get its head around, that you get the best out of the two worlds, operationally uh, extracting as much value as possible, and strategically that you have the right asset allocation over time. But admittedly, I think we are all, as Kim pointed to, I think we are all in this sector, uh, currently, uh, not the favorite uh, animal when you look at the uncertainty in the global economy. We, the, the volatility seems to be something that deters people. We like it, of course, because we we, we think we are doing a great job and, and having uh, having uh, solid results. But I can see that the argument is that we are not uh, providing the stable kind of investment. We are we are in that sense 
exposed to volatile markets and we are spot that we don't have a lot of cover on our full book. Well, yeah, it seems like there's not a lot of differentiation when you look at the share prices uh, versus the companies that have clean balance sheets and and, and lower leverage like you do and and maybe some other uh, competitors and peers that have higher leverage and and a a wider fluctuation of assets. And, you know, shipping overall, as you mentioned, has been completely beaten up and even tankers, uh, crew tankers, product tankers. enormous discounts, right? Uh, you're not alone, right? If you take your average peer discount, uh, you guys land somewhere in the middle. So it's frustrating that you're at a discount. Uh, but as you mentioned, it seems to be a, a sector problem. Uh, hopefully, you know, you keep that capital allocation uh, steady and, and look at repurchases if you can. I know it's difficult to do too many repurchases because you only have a 14% retail free float. So it's, it's it's difficult to chip away at that one. Uh, last question on that note, you recently did this transaction. It was called a capital, I think it was called a capital reduction. And I think that was based on something to do with your London listing. Can you kind of talk us through what that means? And I, I think my, my understanding of it is it means you can do more dividends and more repurchases down the road. Uh, is there anything else about that capital reduction that we need to know about? No, it, it is more or less a, a technical uh, capital reduction where we uh, where we uh, distributed it from uh, share premium uh, and uh, and distributed to retail retail earnings. So we uh, basically have the full flexibility to in the future um, uh, have dividends uh, distribute dividends um, uh, with full flexibility. So so that is basically the point. It's more of technical nature than of uh, of uh, anything else. And it is, you are right. It is through our PLC. Okay. Yeah. It was it was, it was interesting because I saw that you know the trade winds headline. And I saw that you know the press release that you did, um, but it seemed like it was kind of a nuance. And I was just curious if that would impact yeah, your yeah, but it was. purchase. Yeah, but you're right. It was a nuance. That was that was all. That was also it. But it but basically just for us to uh, to have the flexibility to maneuver in uh, going forward. Okay, excellent. Interesting. All right. Um, a couple other follow-up questions I had. Uh, we had some folks share some questions on, on our website and, and whatnot. Um, you know, ha- have there been any issues with crew replacements? I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, crews being stuck on board, right, because of COVID. Ha- has that presented any unique problems for TORM? Ha- have you been able to do any sort of crew changes, crew swaps, uh, any sort of operational challenges in that regard? Yeah, that's, that, that is very, uh, operationally, I would say that's our biggest uh, issue currently. Uh, I think we estimate that uh, out of our planned crew changes, we've only been able over the last months, uh, couple of months to do, let's say, about 10%. So that means that, yes, we've done crew changes, but in absolute terms, not at all to the level that we had planned uh, for. So it, it means that this uh, is, of course, an unsustainable the situation for us, for our colleagues at sea, and I think for the wider industry, uh, we have, let's say, about 3,000 seafarers in total associated uh, uh, with our fleet, half being at home, half being on board, and of course, they need to interchange. Globally, you have about 1.2 million seafarers, and I think uh, we are, of course, a micro uh, organism in that. But uh, I think the data points uh, we have would be that it's pretty much the same uh, across the sector. So you have hundreds of thousands of people who are actually now staying on on board for longer. And um, in my opinion, uh, uh, something should be done and you should have sort of a pooling uh, globally between uh, these uh, operators of ships 
that can enable governments to open up for flights, etc. Because it 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 is something uh, that is concerning that it takes place. But I think we are not in a, we're not in a unique uh, position. We're doing everything we can whenever it's possible to uh, relieve our crew and and to exchange it. But it is it is in the current environment where every nation has its own rules, so to say, and that they change quite rapidly. Uh, in that landscape, uh, you really cannot plan uh, uh, as we as we used to. So we just have to take it day by day, and then as as one thing operationally, and then the other thing to put pressure on uh, governments uh, globally via uh, what is termed ICS, International Chamber of Shipping, where we are as a country where Denmark is a member and where, coincidentally, I'm the chairman of, of Danish Shipping and where we put political pressure on. Um, one of the things is we have Danish seafarers and actually in Denmark is one of the few countries where you have openness and where the government allows seafarers to move over the border to uh, embark and disembark from vessels. Yeah, it, very, very challenging environment. And of course, uh, you know, as investors and, and members of the company and different shipping companies, very appreciative of everything the, sh- the seafarers are doing. And just such a challenging environment to to be away from families for so many months. And I know there's been a lot of stories of uh, certain crews been away from their families for, you know, four or five or six months. And, and so very, yeah. very difficult think- environment. And, and just yeah, at a personal level, I think, uh, of course, we've been working from home. Uh, all of our offices have been working from home globally. We got, let's say, about 300 people in India, Manila, uh, Denmark, US, uh, UK. They've all been working from home, but they are not really the heroes who make that work. Uh, that is, in a way, luxury issues compared to that the real heroes is obviously, as you point to, uh, indirectly, is uh, the people who are taking the turn. Uh, on board ships uh, day in, day out, and who really can't foresee also when are they going to see their loved ones. I'm sure uh, we are in constant uh, direct dialogue on a daily basis with all of our vessels. And obviously, the thing that is mostly on their mind is when will I actually get the opportunity to be relieved and see my loved ones. I think that's that's fair to say that this is, this is an extremely important uh, issue currently for us to assist with but of course we need we need governments uh, help we need them to uh, to reopen not only the lockdown but also reopen borders of course uh, just a remaining a challenge on on the human aspect and and I'm glad again we got we had a chance to point that out because I think a lot of times you know when we're talking about investments and the ships and the and the the business, uh, you know, a lot of times we forget about the human aspect. So I'm glad we, we had a chance to touch on that. Um, kind of final question related to kind of COVID-19 and the environment we have today. Uh, new builds have plummeted, right? And nobody's really buying vessels. So I imagine that shipyards are getting more, maybe desperate's not the right word, but they're definitely getting more aggressive in, in terms of their pricing. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of new builds. Uh, we, we saw a VLCC announced I think it was yesterday uh, at a pretty low price. I think it was like 73 million or, or excuse me, 83 million for VLCC. Um, have you been, you know, receiving offers from shipyards for, you know, LR2s, LR1s, MRs? Have they became more aggressive on, on their pricing of new builds? And do you anticipate there's going to be any sort of uh, pickup or surge in orders for for new ships? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um I think fundamentally that shipyards will obviously, uh, in the current environment, they need a certain 
degree of uh, transparency on their order book. On the other hand, as I see it, uh, the way they play their hand is that they will try to uh, have as small an order book as they can get away with and still produce in the current environment. So that also means that the deals that they will be offering at discounted prices will be few, and it will be to sort of friends of the house uh, kind of uh, in all segments, whether it is in the crude product or other segments. Um, shipyards don't like to sort of be labeled as uh, as going out and just being in panic mode and selling off at uh, low prices, but there will be deals potentially done. I don't imagine that it will be uh, a rush uh, to the yards because the yards will really have to discount it heavily in the current environment. So, uh, yes, some new ordering uh, will take place, like the one you mentioned, uh, I'm sure, also in Suez and and, uh, and Afros and, and all the way down to Emas. There will be uh, the uh, the odd uh, deal being done sort of privately with the friends of that particular shipyard. I think that's, that is uh, how we expect it, but not something that is uh, dramatic and not something that would make me concerned about a tsunami of supply coming to the market within the next couple of years. Yeah, hopefully not. We'll, we'll, we'll watch it and see what happens there. We, we haven't really seen any orders on the product side. I think we saw some LR2s a, a month or so ago, but we haven't seen a lot of orders. Hopefully it'll stay that way. Um, but I imagine, uh, as we just discussed, the, the pricing will come down. Um, I, I think we've covered uh, most of the topics today. I, I appreciate your time. I, I guess kind of a closing question uh, for folks on the call today and, and for the recording we'll post later. Um, why should investors pick Torm, right? There's there's a lot of product tanker companies. There are, you know, Scorpio, Ardmore, Hafnia, a few others. Um, why should investors pick Torm as their investment choice in product tanker markets? What differentiates and sets you apart uh, from your peers and competitors? Yeah, that, that's a good uh, closing question. Thanks for, uh, for that. Uh, first and foremost, I think uh, at the end of the day, obviously, uh, in order to invest in Torm, you need to believe in the product tanker segment that we have. We have strong names, uh, as you already uh, pointed to, who are our peers and uh, who we are actually working in a way together in trying to get as much out of the market as possible. I think what is clear uh, for us is that we really uh, try to balance uh, the customer uh, approach. So we have the one-tone platform, which our customer honestly like. They like the one-stop kind of approach where we got everything under control and where uh, everything that is related to whether it's safety or commercial terms, we can actually turn any decision around across our fleet uh, within a day because we got everything uh, in-house, as Kim also uh, alluded to. And then on the other hand, balancing that out with getting the highest possible return on our investors' uh, investments in Torm so that the platform delivers the highest return on investor capital. So I think it's that balancing act uh, of the operational excellence where we see uh, that we can manage the assets and uh, extract the highest uh, potential in any given market, and that that in turn leads to uh, that the assets we have and the location of assets, the way we do it, actually contributes with the highest uh, return on investor capital, which is a meaningful difference. Uh, you pointed to our MR uh, performance, and I think uh, if we, for instance, look at our TCE in the MR segment, uh, then, and, and take our earning up against what is the average in the peer group. Then in the first quarter alone, 
had we been an average company, we would have had a um, an earning which would be $19 million lower than what we actually came out with. And then, of course, if you do that quarter on quarter, uh, constantly uh, in the, the top quartile of this, you will create meaningful additional value that, that uh, comes back to the investors at the end of the day. So I think that would be that would be my selling point. But you need to believe, of course, first in the product segment, segment, given that we're all in the same boat in this sector. Yeah, thank you, Jacob. It'll it'll definitely be interesting to watch. I know a lot of folks are, you know, looking at the other side. I think it was what you mentioned earlier in our call. They're they're looking at the other side of the hill, uh, looking at the challenges of destocking and seeing how quickly we can manage through that. Um, it, of course, it's very important to have a, a company with good assets, uh, with a good balance sheet, with no challenges li- with liquidity. Um, obviously, Torm checks most of those boxes. Um, different peers, of course, and competitors we won't name and shame, but might have different leverages or, or different liquidity challenges and so on. Uh, Jacob and Kim, I think it was very useful uh, for our call today. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very Thanks much. for having us. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for another episode of Value Investors Edge Live. As a reminder, nothing you heard today on the call constitutes investment advice or official company guidance in any form. I have no current position in TORM. This is being recorded on the afternoon of 19 May 2020. If you listen to recording at a later date, those positions may have changed.